I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through our apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our uh, ancestors died, everything goes on as, as since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By those waters also the word of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is now slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like the thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will will be destroyed by the fire. And the earth and everything done, it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth where the righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Uh, friends, we're going to turn now to continue thinking about what we started last night, which was this, uh, this theme of the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus and its coming that we've been praying for. Uh, before we jump in tonight, I, I just want to actually make a quick corrective on something I said last night, a uh, small point, but at one point we were talking largely about Matthew's gospel, but at one point you remember I spoke about the Lord's Prayer in Luke's gospel, and I said it was after that the disciples were sent out. It was actually before that. So just a sequence thing, but it's good for us not to get our Bibles backwards. So I thought if you made a note, you might just want to put an arrow to correct that, and I don't want to say anything up the front that isn't consistent with what's in the Scripture. Anyway, let's move forward and build on what we started with last night. And I really want to uh, start it with this question that you should have on your outline there. And it's a, a question that kind of, at one level, is, is obvious, uh, an obvious question to ask, but the answer may not be the obvious answer unless we've thought about it. And the question is, if everything will be better when Jesus returns, why hasn't he? Why hasn't he? 
Yesterday, you remember, we spoke about when the kingdom comes in all its fullness, when Jesus returns, everything will be good. Everything will be great. Everything will be beyond the goodest good you could possibly imagine. It, it, it will be inconceivably excellently brilliant and everything evil will be gotten rid of and destroyed and gone. It will be fantastic. And so the question is, if that's what it's going to be like, why hasn't it happened yet? What, why hasn't Jesus come back? Why hasn't his kingdom come? Why let the world, to put a bit more of a point on it, why let the world continue as it is with so much injustice and so much suffering and so much pain and so much evil and so much hurt and so much brokenness and so much fear and so much terror? Why let that go on? If a day is coming when it's all going to be swept away and everything is going to be fantastic, as Jesus takes his place as the ruler over all things and all people. If you think about the story of the Bible, actually, it's a good question as well to ask, why didn't the world wrap up, why didn't history end at the first coming of Jesus? That would seem to make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? If you follow the big story of the Bible, we have a world made good, fallen into sin and suffering all the consequences and all the mess and the judgment of that sin, waiting for a saviour, waiting for salvation. Jesus comes and it's not the end of the story. Why not? Why wasn't that it? Why didn't we then have the curtain close, everyone take a bow and say, praise God, it's all sorted out now. When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. His work was finished. But the world's not finished. History's not finished. Things are still happening. What's going on? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't God closed this chapter and ended history? Now, my hunch is that we don't actually think through this question all that much, but we have a subconscious answer. Or many in our culture, at least, even Christian brothers and sisters, people in our churches, have a subconscious answer that directs their lives. And I reckon the answer is this. Say, Jesus hasn't come back yet because we've got lives to get on with. Isn't that right? Jesus hasn't come back yet because I've got things to do. There's stuff that I've got to get on with. And there's a whole life that needs to unfold before me. All of my dreams and aspirations and hopes and things I was planning on getting done in my life haven't been done yet, and Jesus is leaving me time to do them. So uh, clearly what's still outstanding for me is to, uh, say, finish my education uh, and then get that job I've wanted and then move up a bit through the ranks because I don't want to be down the bottom the whole time uh, and then find the right person and, and get married. Uh, and then having gotten married, be lovely to have some kids. And it wouldn't be, I mean, I want to watch my kids grow up and then when they grow up, it would be fantastic to watch them go through their education, go to school, get to university. When they finish their education, they'll want to get their job as well. And they won't just want to stay like at the bottom. They'll want to move up a bit because that would be good. Uh, and then hopefully they'll meet the person that they want to marry. And then they'll have kids as well. And their kids will want to... This is how we live, right? It's often, I think, in our heads that the reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God is just leaving this nice tale of time on history for us to fulfill our middle-class dreams of seeing the wheels spin round and round on generations of family and, and homes and travel and life and relationships. And they're all great things. But really, is that why Jesus hasn't come back yet? 
Is that why? The classic example of this, this thinking that you know, Jesus hasn't come back because there's still things I want to do in my life, is of course, and I seriously didn't know that Charlie was coming to speak, but it's, it's the engaged couple, right? It is. It's like, Jesus, it'd be great if you came back, but not before February the 8th, because that's our wedding day. And frankly, I would like to get to that point before you return, because there's some things that I... The engaged couple is the classic, Jesus, it would be great if you come back, but probably sex is going to be better, and so I'd like to have that before you come back and things aren't as good afterward. <laughs> but the problem, of course, is, right? <laughs> the problem, of course, with this, isn't it? is when you say it out loud like that, you realise this is a ridiculous way to think. And you realise, hang on, hang on, this doesn't make sense. If we have this view, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're really having a very low view of what it's going to look like for the fulfilment of God's kingdom, isn't it? We have a very low view of God's eternal plan, a very low view of what Jesus is going to establish and accomplish eternally when he returns. We think it will be okay... But stuff that's going on now is actually pretty good too and probably comparable and in some cases maybe a bit better. It's just so wrong. It's such, it's such a small, low, inadequate view of what it will be like when Jesus returns and I hope we painted that picture already yesterday. It's also a very privileged view, isn't it? It's the kind of view that's easy to have as someone who sits in the middle class bracket of a wealthy, safe Western culture. Because I can bet you right now that there are Christians in parts of the world who want to see Jesus come back real soon. They are not waiting for more days to keep living their lives because their lives are terrible. And we see enough of this on the news right now and there's enough of it that's not on the news as well that we don't know about. There are enough Christian believers out there who would love for Jesus to come back now because they know it will be better because they don't live in the comfort bubble that we live in and not able to deceive themselves in the way that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that this life could somehow be comparable with the life to come. I think this is one of the ways that we can slide into thinking. Jesus hasn't come back yet because we've got our lives to get on with. Another way that you might actually answer that question is this way. You might say... If everything will be better when Jesus returns, uh, why hasn't he come back? The reason he hasn't come back is actually because he's not really coming. He's not really coming, actually. Now, there's two versions of this. There's the strong kind of atheistic version, which is uh, Jesus isn't coming back. It's all a load of rot. It's rubbish. Christians are in a, a fairy dreamland. Uh, yes, I think that's out there and people think that. And that's something that uh, maybe many of us have actually wrestled with at close quarters. Is this really true? Like, are we believing a fairy tale? Uh, and that's when we really have to look, isn't it, at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? That's when you need to read things like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ is raised, all will be raised. It paints the picture of Jesus being the pioneer, the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead, showing us what it will look like to have eternal life and the fact that's guaranteed by his own resurrection. But I'm not even talking about that hard view, that strong, is it actually true? 
But there's, there's a softer version of this as well, isn't there? Which is the kind of the theological doubt version. Not the it's all rubbish or maybe it's just all wrong, but maybe I haven't quite understood it right. Maybe that language of Jesus returning isn't really talking about him returning. Maybe that language of new heaven and new earth and new creation is kind of not really what it seems to say. And maybe my picture that I've created is, is not actually what the Bible tells me is clearly going to happen. And so we create these doubts that perhaps our picture of the end time is wrong and maybe he's not coming in the way that we think. Well, it's really important to address that. And as uh, we're going to address that this evening, we're going to address it in a way that intersects with the question of why Jesus hasn't come back yet. That question of uh, whether our picture of this is a good picture and, in answering that, why that picture hasn't been uh, made into a reality for us yet. And we come to all of those things by looking at the chapter we heard read, 2 Peter chapter 3, where these very issues are being wrestled with by the Christians that Peter writes to, and he responds giving a clear theological picture, but also an answer to our big question of the evening. Now, 2 Peter is a letter that uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest companions while he was in his earthly ministry, that that, that Peter wrote uh, to churches that were in uh, the uh, scattered throughout the uh, early um, Mediterranean world. And in it, it's dealing with a couple of issues. A big one is false teachers. False teachers. Another one is the question of the delay of the return of Jesus. Uh, and there's this uh, all set in the context of persecution. It's quite a kind of potent and dangerous mix. Here are these young churches uh, spread out across the world. Peter's writing to them saying, uh, you're in a circumstance where you have not only questions about what's going to happen in the end, but people who are persecuting you and people who are telling you wrong things about this. So let me set this right. You need right teaching that will inform you about what's going to happen and that will help you understand this period of persecution and when it will end. And he wrestles with that in these verses. Let's have a look at them together, shall we? You'll see there in the first excuse me, the first couple of verses, that uh, Peter is now reiterating stuff that he has said before, verses 1 and 2. He's reminding them of important things. He's getting their thinking straight. He's reorienting them on things that they've heard before and they need to know. Dear friends, this is my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So here's Peter saying, I'm just going to reinforce a whole lot of stuff you've heard before. It's a reminder. I'm repeating stuff. I want you to recall things. It's not just his words. It's the words that came uh, through the prophets and through Jesus via the apostles. It comes from solid biblical pedigree, uh, from the voices of people who we can trust. And Peter wants to uh, put it back front and centre for the Christians he's writing to. He says, above all, the thing that you most need to understand, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, 
scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So what Peter's doing here is saying, you have to understand this. In these last days, which is his language for the period between the first and second coming of Jesus, in these last days, there are going to be scoffers. There are going to be people who see your hope, see the things you trust in and scoff at you and mock you and make fun of you and sow doubts about the things that are at the core of your belief to do with the return of Jesus. Their argument will be this. Their argument will be, Nothing changes in the world. You know, you say the Messiah's coming, but I don't see him. In fact, he's no closer to coming today than he was yesterday, or the day before, or the day before. In fact, nothing much changes in the world. It just carries on as it always has, and it always will. He's not coming back. Can't you see? It sounds like a very rational argument, doesn't it? You know, in, in my lifetime, there's nothing to indicate the return of Jesus, so why should I think that that's coming in the future? It's interesting to note, just as a little aside here, by the way, though, as rational as the argument sounds, it's not a rational argument, is it? It's an argument born out of immorality. It's an argument born out of immorality. Did you see that? Verse 3, the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Uh, this is often the case, by the way. It's a good lesson for us, uh, particularly in a context where uh, some groups of people who disbelieve in Jesus want to throw lots of rational arguments and some Christians want to respond with a bunch of other rational arguments. And we have these debates between so-called new atheists and Christians that are all about whose rationality is more solid. But it's not about that. It's not about that. It's actually about some people following their own evil desires and just looking for things to throw up to justify their sinfulness. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you're someone who wants to indulge in an immoral life, then what you want to do is avoid the idea of judgment. So you'll start rallying whatever you can find to break down the idea of judgment as much for yourself as for those you're speaking to. Christians often uh, want to engage people at a rational level. That's a great and good thing to do, and I've done a lot of it myself. But a good question to ask is, what's going on in your heart? Why are you so desperate to prove that this isn't true? And I'll bet nine times out of ten the answer is because you don't want to change your immoral life to deal with the fact that a judgment's coming. It's always about sin and the justification for sin and the judgment on sin. Anyway, this is the argument they'll make, Peter says. They'll come and they'll throw up these arguments that nothing's changed, the world carries on, there's no difference. Jesus isn't coming back. And he says in verse 5, but they deliberately forget, deliberately, conveniently, they make a choice to forget some facts that are actually very important. And the facts are that long ago, by God's word, the heaven came into being and the earth was formed out of water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Talking about what here? The flood that we read about in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. And what's Peter's point? Peter's point is, no, they've deliberately in their argument forgotten something. Their argument says nothing ever changes. The world's always as it was and always as it will be. And he says, that's not true. That's not true. There has been a time when the world 
was as it was, full of sin and sinners, and it was destroyed by a flood because of that. It's not always gone on, same, same, with no coming judgment, with no catastrophic act of God that brings sinners down. It's not true. They've conveniently forgotten that long ago, God brought the flood and destroyed the earth because of sin. And he says then in verse 7, by the same word, the same word that spoke back in Genesis, the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He says we're in a similar period to those people who lived just before the flood. He says they might have thought, well, nothing's changed. We're just living sinful lives and nothing ever comes of it. And they were wiped out by water. And Peter says in the same way, today we live in a world that is waiting for a time not of water but of fire. When the same thing is going to happen. God is going to come and judge and destroy sin and sinfulness and sinners because he doesn't let those things go. Because he's a just God who won't let those things go unchecked. Peter's saying, their argument is, this is, how God wo- this is how the world is, rather. Nothing changes. He's saying, no, that's not how the world is. The world has periods of sinfulness followed by judgment, and this is how God works, and you should learn from the past, because it is going to happen again. Then he moves to talk about the question of timing. After having reminded them that, no, all the things they've learned about the coming of Jesus are true, there will be a day of judgment, there will be a day when sins are called to account, he then moves on to this question of timing. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In verse 8 there, it's not about doing biblical mathematics and saying, well, if we count how many days there's been since here and multiply them by that many thousand years, then since a day is like a thousand years, then it must be... No, it's not about doing sums. It's saying God doesn't see time the same way we do. Because God is eternal, the fact that we've waited hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, and it seems a long time, it's not long to God. To him, it's like the passing of a day in terms of the need to be patient and to endure that length of time. It's not slowness in the way we perceive it because God is not so limited in his experience of time that a great length of time, even a thousand years, is long to him. It's more like we experience a day. So even though it seems like nothing's changing and Jesus isn't coming back and this end isn't coming to pass... That's our perspective. That's our short-sightedness. That's us thinking, because it hasn't happened in the flicker of my life, it's never going to happen. But we need God's perspective, God's long-sighted view. We need to realize that God's time scales are actually bigger than ours. We fit into his chronology. His plans may not fit into ours that way. So though it seems long, it's still coming. And God hasn't forgotten And he's not dragging his heels. The day's coming. In verse 10 he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The day will come like a thief in the night. Everything will be stripped down, disclosed and judged. And it will catch some people off guard. Like a thief in the night. You know, Jesus uses that illustration as well. 
If you're prepared for the thief in the night, then they wouldn't be able to catch you out. So be prepared, Jesus says. But there'll be some who aren't prepared. And the day will catch them off guard. So though the time seems long and dragging, and when's it going to happen? For some people, it's like, oh my goodness, it came all of a sudden. I wasn't expecting it. Some people's experience of the coming of the Lord will be very different. The pattern of history with the flood and the word of God and God's own perspective on time all reconfirm the fact that the day of judgment is coming, when sinners will be held to account, and when God's people will enter into glory with him forever. Those things that we believe are right and true, and Peter wants to affirm them to a church who's struggling with those questions. But why the delay? We still haven't answered that question. Why the delay? Why not yet? What is this time for? Well, it was the bit that I moved over just a little bit more quickly. I hope you noticed it. Verse 9 is right there with the answer for us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, and here's the key, he is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because God is leaving more time for more sinners to repent. That's the answer. God is leaving more time for more sinners to repent. That is why Jesus has not come back yet. The reason that the world continues to spin on its axis day by day and around the sun year by year, the reason that the sun comes up every morning and goes down every night and and the cycle goes on and we can live our lives and do our thing is because God is leaving more time for people to come to Jesus in repentance and belief and faith. That's the only reason. That's the only reason. I've uh, summarised this for you in a diagram that you have in your sheet. Uh, If anyone's ever studied with me, they'll see this diagram because I pull it out all the time because I think it makes sense of a lot of stuff. Um, It's not my diagram. I stole it from someone and I can't remember who they are. So I hereby acknowledge the person from whom I stole it in their anonymity. It's very simple, and you've probably seen things like it before, but I still think it's helpful. Uh, It starts uh, way over at the beginning with the creation and with everything sitting up just as God intended. The world is good, like God wanted it to be. Okay, The early chapters of Genesis. In fact, the first two pages of the Bible, uh, the rest of it kind of goes sour, doesn't it? Then we have the fall. Sin enters into the world. And everything's broken, everything's damaged, everything's headed in a bad direction. And if you go from sin and track along the direction that it leads you, it leads you where? It leads you to eternal destruction. It leads you to judgment. It leads you to death. So you have a problem. But in the middle of history, what happened? God sent Jesus. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He sent Jesus to die for our sin. To be the one who took the punishment for us, who stood in our place and through whom we can be presented clean before the Father. And that means that people can now be back up in the place that they were meant to be, in good relationship with God and heading towards the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, everything being made as they should and fulfilled and better and greater than we can possibly imagine. And yet now we live in this parallel period, don't we? 
with, with both some people on this track to destruction, still following lives of sin, not having turned to Jesus, and some who have and who are headed to glory by his grace. And the purpose of this age is so that people can make the jump from one track to another. So that people who are headed for destruction can jump up, uh, can by God's grace, by God's spirit, by the ministry of God's people proclaiming the gospel, come to faith in Jesus as their king, enter his kingdom and head for glory. That's the purpose of the age. That is the purpose of this time between the first and second coming of Jesus. And Jesus will come again and he will come the second time to judge. And after that it will be too late. There will be no repentance after that point possible. There will be no chance to make the transition to his kingdom. The purpose of the age is that sinners might repent. That's it. It's powerful for Peter's readers because, you know, Peter's writing to people who are being scoffed at, who are being mocked, who are being made fun of. And Jesus, the response that Peter gives them is, Jesus hasn't come back yet, not because he wants to prolong your suffering, but because the very people who persecute you, he is hoping will convert and will come to actually be your brothers and sisters and share in glory with you. Uh, the, very pe- the very people who are causing this suffering are people for whom God is leaving the window open. For whom God is saying there's still a chance for you to repent. They will face the day of judgment. And God the Father wants even them to see it as saved people forgiven by Jesus. powerful when you think of that situation for Peter's writers. It's powerful today when we think of, again, the things that we're seeing on our televisions, what's going on in Iraq and Syria. Why hasn't God ended the world and and stopped all that mess? Because there's room for those sinners to come to Jesus in repentance and be part of his kingdom, believe it or not. God loves them and he's being patient with them and giving them that chance to repent. But it's powerful even in our world too. It's powerful for me. I became a Christian about 21 years ago. 21 years ago I became a believer at university. And if Jesus had come back 22 years ago, I would be screwed eternally. There would be, there would be no hope for me. But he didn't. And in his great mercy, instead he was patient and he left time for me to repent And a faithful brother who I spoke to you about before spoke the gospel to me and loved me and pastored me and through the work of God's spirit I became reborn as a child of God and entered the kingdom eternally. And it's still going on, you see. This is what God is doing now. Sometimes it doesn't look like it, but what God is doing now is building his kingdom. He's building his kingdom. He's leaving time for people like those terrible sinners who we all agree are sinners in the worst parts of the world to come to repentance. But he's leaving time for ordinary plebs like me who are just going about their life, doing their thing, to realise they too need to bow the knee and recognise Jesus is the king and inherit that great salvation from him. The only reason I'm here is because of God's patience. So, what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? The purpose of the age, I'm saying to you, 
is that people might come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is that people might repent and follow Jesus as Lord and Saviour. What are we going to do with that? Well, I'm going to draw three imperatives for you out of the text itself in the verses that follow. Verse 11 has our first point of application here. And it's kind of not the one that I immediately thought of, but it's the one that Peter wants us to hear first. Verse 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. The first thing that we need to do is be holy and stay holy. We need to be holy and stay holy now. Now that's kind of a bit odd, isn't it? Hang on, what's that got to do with what we've been talking about? Well, it's got everything to do with what we've been talking about because who's judgment coming against? The unholy. Those who reject God. Those who don't submit to Jesus as king. So don't now live a life as an unholy person. Don't live a life as though you're a person who's headed for judgment and destruction. Don't put yourself back on that track. You want to be found living a faithful and holy life on the last day. You don't want to say, I kind of banked that 21 years ago, and so now that's secure, and actually now what I do doesn't really matter. It's not like that. That's a false gospel. Have you ever heard people say this? People say the gospel is... Uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so what you do doesn't matter. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what you do matters so much that Jesus had to die on the cross for your sins and give you free entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But then don't go back to living the way you lived before. Don't reject the one who saved you after he saved you. Be holy and be found holy on the last day. Someone who belongs to the kingdom and lives like it. It's really important for those of us thinking about ministry as well, isn't it? We might have spent a bit of time this weekend and and might go on to think about the things we might do. What ministry might I do? I might serve in my local church in various ways. I might become a missionary. I might work in a parachurch agency, a mission organisation here in Australia, something like that. Good questions to ask, secondary questions to ask. First questions are character questions. Am I mature in Christ? Am I persevering in holiness? Am I continuing in the faith in which I started? Or have I kind of let that drop off while I just get on with jobs? No, we need to stay the people who were called to be through our whole lives. We saw yesterday when looking at the Sermon on the Mount that God is profoundly opposed to hypocrites among his people. So let's not call others to holiness while we ourselves let it go by the by. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? How your life honours Jesus always matters. And the profound thing to read here is, Peter's saying this to people who are undergoing persecution and suffering. He's saying, even when the the going gets tough, even when life is hard, even when you're hard up against it, that's no excuse to give up on holiness. That's no excuse to deny Jesus. That's no excuse to not live his way or as an inheritor of his kingdom. And if it's true in tough times, how much more is it obvious for those of us who aren't suffering for our faith in any real way? It's non-negotiable. God doesn't just expect morality in easy times or when we first get converted, 
but through our whole lives. It's interesting as well to think about why this is in here as well, isn't it? Why would, why would Peter write this? What's this got to do with the context going on? You know, aren't they converted? Isn't this like something that shouldn't be a problem for them? Well, no, the reality is, and you know it as well as I do, that temptation is always real, even for the believer, even for the person who unashamedly declares Christ as king, temptation away from holiness, away from his way, away from living under his ruler's king is always there. There'd be no point warning about it if it wasn't a risk, would there? But it is a risk, and that's why we're warned. Anger doesn't just go away. Lust, laziness, selfishness, all those things from the past life still cling and still need to be fought against and rejected. We need to work that stuff out for ourselves. Absolutely. And the church needs us to work it out too. Because we need people who are working in Christian leadership who can help others in this. You see, this is a hard road to walk on your own. If you're suffering with temptation, if you're, you're, you're thinking that it's going to be easier for you to forget holiness, to drift away from it, you want someone there by your side. You want someone putting you on the right path. You need a pastor be that an official vocational head of a church type pastor or someone who's just a leader among the Christian circles you circulate in who's helping you stay on the track. And we, I hope, will be many of those pastors to people. A large part of the work of pastoral ministry is tending the flock. That's language that Jesus gave to Peter. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter will use it in 1 Peter chapter 5. Tend the flock. Care for believers who are at risk, not just of being savaged by the wolves, but of in the face of trials and the trials of life, giving up on their faith or giving in to unholiness. We need pastors in the churches who can guide us in the truth of of the scriptures in season and out of season, in all seasons of life. We need leaders in our churches who will call brothers and sisters to account for their own good and for their own holiness. We need men and women serving in churches who keep reminding us to be penitent and turning to God Asking for his forgiveness when we fall short. We need people who will help bring us together as communities where that's the norm. Where we help each other work through the trials of life as holy people. We need those people. And for many of us, we need to be those people for others. We are desperately needed in the church in that way. So stay holy is the first application of the fact that Jesus has not come back because in these troubled times, he's leaving room for people to repent. Stay holy and help others stay holy. The second is more obvious. It's evangelize. Of course, it's evangelize. Verse 12 is uh, kind of interesting in the language it uses. Uh, What sort of people ought you be? Uh, You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I've got speed, it's coming. You might have wait eagerly or even hasten the day. It's kind of strange language there. But the idea is that you are enthusiastic for the coming of the day. You're involved in the things that will see that day come. 
That is, I think what Peter is alluding at here is as you are involved in the ministries that will see people transition from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Uh, as you get on with the critical work of the age, uh, be holy, but do that critical work of the age. That critical work of helping people realise these are the times of God's patience, these are the times when he's leaving for others to repent. We need people to hasten and speed the coming of the day when all the elect have been called and when everyone who God wants with him eternally will be with him eternally. We need evangelists. We need evangelists. We need lots of evangelists. Uh, We need uh, every one of us to be an evangelist, to share the good news of the Lord Jesus at every opportunity we have. Uh, I have to say uh, up front here, I'm not of the view that you can be a Christian person and not be proactive about evangelism. Now, I'm not saying that means you all need to be professional evangelists or you all need to be people who do nothing but evangelise, but I'm saying it seems very strange to me that someone could be a Christian and have no interest in the work of evangelism and not feel spurred to evangelise. Some will be gifted, dedicated, set-aside evangelists. The phrase Ben doesn't like capital E evangelists. But that doesn't take the duty away from all of us. My best story to illustrate this is of my father-in-law. He was camping once with his family uh, near a river. And uh, there's another family camping downstream. And a boy fell in the river. And he was in real trouble. Uh, He was at risk of drowning. So his dad jumped in the river to save him. And he couldn't. And they got in all kinds of mess. And the two of them were now uh, stuck and at risk of drowning. And my father-in-law came with a rope, threw it in, and pulled them out. And they used to write him a card every year, thanking him for saving their lives. Now, was he a lifeguard? Was he a park ranger? Was he a member of the emergency services? Was it his job? No. But how could he look at them and not do anything? How could he look at them and not do anything? We all have that role of saving people uh, with whatever capacity we're able of, of telling people the good news of the gospel at every opportunity, whether or not we consider ourselves to be evangelists, whether or not all we can do is clumsily throw a rope in their direction. It could be what God by his spirit uses to drag them out of that place that's headed to death and destruction. Some will be evangelists, I hope, and I have to say... As I look around at the church in Australia, I'm kind of disappointed that we don't have more evangelists. That is, capital E, evangelists. That is, on your business card, evangelists. What's your job? I'm an evangelist. It seems to be an office in the New Testament. We seem to have it in Ephesians 4. We seem to have uh, Philip the evangelist given that title. It seems to be a job. And yet, why don't we have evangelists in the church? Well, I think if you feel like that's a problem, then it's a good thing to go knocking on your pastor's door and saying, why don't we employ an evangelist? And pastor says, oh, I don't really know anyone who could be that person. And you say, well, maybe it could be you. I think the only difference between a capital E evangelist and the rest of us is a capital E evangelist is someone who is particularly gifted, and I think you'll see that gifting through its fruit. So if you've led one or two or three people to Christ, you might have the gift And then someone who's invested in their gift by getting trained and getting more thoroughly prepared and geared up to be full-time in this role. And then simply someone who's deployed, who's given a job as evangelist. 
I'd love to see more people at Bible college saying, I want to be an evangelist. Where can I get a job? If people come into my office and ask that, we'll go looking together. We need evangelists. We need them to go overseas and be missionaries. We need them in local churches here too. There are models, but there's not enough. And we need evangelists, all of us, specialists, the whole bit. So we need to stay holy. We need evangelism. We need to be on about proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And thirdly, we need to do what Peter has helped us do here, which is keep our eyes on eternity. Verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We need to keep our eyes on eternity. We need to, for our own sakes, not be deceived into thinking that Jesus isn't coming back. And for the sake of the lost, we need to keep our eyes on eternity. Because if we don't, then we won't have any sense of urgency about the need for them to hear the gospel and repent and be saved. Peter's writing his letter to a church uh, to encourage the Christians not to take their eyes off this truth. He's reminding them, keep your eyes fixed on eternity and remember that God loves those who are all around you as you wait for that day. And again, we need pastors for this task in our churches, don't we? We need pastors and church leaders and Bible study group leaders and men and women working in all different capacities across all the different ministries you can think of who help us keep our eyes on eternity. Kind of sounds obvious, but I do wonder sometimes how many churches keep pointing their congregation's eyes at eternity. How many Bible study group leaders keep pointing their members' eyes at eternity? How much we keep reminding ourselves that the day is coming. And we need people who can lead us in that because it's an easy thing to not do because it's weird. It is weird, right? It's easy to drift off that and just look at the world around us and think like the scoffers, this is what the world is. This is how it is. This is how it's always going to carry on. And even if somewhere buried deep down we know there's something more, it's easy to just become practically living as though this is all there is. And so we need people who are leading in the church and who keep turning our eyes back to eternity again and again and again, as often as it turns up in the scriptures, which is incredibly regularly. We need preachers especially who are going to do this. We need people who are going to step up to pulpits and who are going to teach the word of God from cover to cover all the way through, help us know God through the scriptures, and as they do that, they will be telling us again and again and again about eternity. We need people who are going to take up that challenge to be preaching the scriptures, showing us how they point to the return of Jesus and the urgency of mission and holiness in that context. We need pastors as well to keep reminding us about eternity because we do live in a broken world in the meantime, don't we? We need women and men in our churches who are going to be there when people suffer. When people get cancer, when terrible things happen in families, we need people who do not just know how to pat them on the back and help them to explore their feelings, though we need people who can do that, but we need people who don't just offer them a comfort that's vacant of the truth, but a comfort that's soaked in the truth that a better day is coming. We need pastoral ministry that's shaped by our picture of eternity. 
We need pastors to help people in our churches when they become selfish or worldly and they invest in their kingdoms in this world to remind them that Christ's kingdom is coming and that's where they need to be investing. We need to not just tell them pragmatically, you should be giving more money to church or supporting this or doing this with your time, but pointing them to eternity, giving them the truth, not just the directions. We need pastors in churches who will help people who are passive, pew warmers, sitting there week in, week out, not expecting much to happen and not making much happen. We need pastors who keep pointing congregations back to eternity and saying a day is coming when Jesus will judge. This is our core business. This is our core business. With our eyes on the end, realising that the time we have now is a time of repentance when we need to live holy lives and call people to Jesus. This is our core business and we need leaders to lead us in this. Because no church rises above its pastor. No ministry rises above its leader. If we have churches without pastors and ministries without leaders, then our eyes are going to be low, not set on the glory that is coming. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Jesus hasn't come back yet because there are still more people who need to be saved. And all of us have work to do in this period. Kingdom work. Work that will last for eternity. Let's pray about it together. Father, we repent of the times when we don't call out for Jesus to come back. We repent of the times that we love this life more than the life of the world to come. We repent of the times when we feel this is as good as it gets. And we pray, Father, that you would please help us to set our eyes on eternity and know that the only reason that the Lord Jesus hasn't returned is because of your patience with sinners. We thank you so much for your patience with us. We thank you so much that you gave us time to bow our knees and call Jesus King and to rejoice in the grace of salvation. And we pray, Father, that as we see others who aren't headed for glory, who are headed for destruction, we pray that we would see them and know that this is their time. This is their time to acknowledge Jesus as King. And the reason that you've left us is because this is our time to share the gospel with them. Father, would you please help us understand the purpose of the age? Would you please help us to align our lives with the purpose of the age? Amen.